Chapter Four, Part One of Through the Brazilian Wilderness. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joelle Peebles. Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt. Chapter Four: The Headwaters of the Paraguay. Part One. At Curumba, our entire party and all their belongings came aboard our good little river boat, the Nyawak. Christmas Day saw us making our way steadily upstream against the strong current and between the green and beautiful banks of the upper Paraguay. The shallow little steamer was jammed with men, dogs, rifles, partially cured skins, boxes of provisions, ammunition, tools, and photographic supplies, bags containing tents, cots, bedding and clothes, saddles, hammocks, and the other necessaries for a trip through the great wilderness, the Mato Grosso of western Brazil. It was a brilliantly clear day, and although of course in that latitude and at that season the heat was intense later on, it was cool and pleasant in the early morning. We sat on the forward deck admiring the trees on the brink of the sheer river banks, the lush rank grass of the marshes, and the many water birds. The two pilots, one black and one white, stood at the wheel. Colonel Rondon read Thomas A. Kempis. Kermit, Sherry, and Miller squatted outside the railing on the deck over one paddle-wheel and put the final touches on the jaguar skins. Fiala satisfied himself that the boxes and bags were in place. It was probable that hardship lay in the future, but the day was our own, and the day was pleasant. In the evening, the after-deck, open all around, where we dined, was decorated with green boughs and rushes, and we drank the health of the President of the United States and of the President of Brazil. Now and then we passed little ranches on the river's edge. This is a fertile land, pleasant to live in, and any settler who is willing to work can earn his living. There are mines, there is water power, there is abundance of rich soil. The country will soon be opened by rail. It offers a fine field for immigration and for agricultural, mining, and business development, and it has a great future. Sherry and Miller had secured a little owl a month before in the Chaco, and it was traveling with them in a basket. It was a dear little bird, very tame and affectionate. It liked to be handled and petted, and when Miller, its especial protector, came into the cabin, it would make queer little noises as a signal that it wished to be taken up and perched on his hand. Sherry and Miller had trapped many mammals. Among them was a Tyra weasel, whitish above and black below, as big and bloodthirsty as a fisher martin, and a tiny opossum no bigger than a mouse. They had taken four species of opossum, but they had not found the curious water opossum which they had obtained on the rivers flowing into the Caribbean Sea. This opossum, which is black and white, swims in the streams like a muskrat or otter, catching fish and living in burrows which open under water. Miller and Sherry were puzzled to know why the young throve, leading such an existence of constant immersion. One of them once found a female swimming and diving freely with four quite well-grown young in her pouch. We saw on the banks screamers, big crested waders of archaic type, with spurred wings, rather short bills, and no special affinities with other modern birds. In one meadow, by a pond, we saw three marsh deer, a buck and two does. They stared at us with their thickly haired tails raised on end. These tails are black underneath, instead of white as in our white-tailed deer. 
one of the vagaries of the ultra-concealing colorationists has been to uphold the incidentally quite preposterous theory that the tail of our deer is colored white beneath so as to harmonize with the sky and thereby mislead the cougar or wolf at the critical moment when it makes its spring but this marsh deer shows a black instead of a white flag and yet has just as much need of protection from its enemies the jaguar and the cougar in south america concealing coloration plays no more part in the lives of the adult deer the tamandua the tapir the peccary the jaguar and the puma than it plays in africa in the lives of such animals as the zebra the sable antelope the wildebeest the lion and the hunting hyena next day we spent ascending the sao lorenzo it was narrower than the paraguay naturally and the swirling brown current was if anything more rapid the strange tropical trees standing densely on the banks were matted together by long bush ropes lianas or vines some very slender and very long sometimes we saw brilliant red or blue flowers or masses of scarlet berries on a queer palm-like tree or an array of great white blossoms on a much larger tree in a lagoon bordered by the tequera bamboo a school of big otters were playing when they came to the surface they opened their mouths like seals and made a loud hissing noise the crested screamers dark gray and as large as turkeys perched on the very topmost branches of the tallest trees hyacinth macaws screamed harshly as they flew across the river among the trees was the guan another peculiar bird as big as a big grouse and with certain habits of the wood grouse but not akin to any northern game bird the windpipe of the male is very long extending down to the end of the breastbone and the bird utters queer guttural screams a dead caiman floated downstream with a black vulture devouring it capybaras stood or squatted on the banks sometimes they stared stupidly at us sometimes they plunged into the river at our approach at long intervals we passed little clearings in each stood a house of palm logs with a steeply pitched roof of palm thatch and near by were patches of corn and manioc the dusky owner and perhaps his family came out on the bank to watch us as we passed it was a hot day the thermometer on the deck in the shade stood at nearly one hundred degrees fahrenheit Biting flies came aboard even when we were in midstream. Next day we were ascending the Cayaba River. It had begun raining in the night, and the heavy downpour continued throughout the forenoon. In the morning we halted at a big cattle ranch to get fresh milk and beef. There were various houses, sheds, and corrals near the river's edge, and fifty or sixty milk cows were gathered in one corral. Spurred plover or laugh wings strolled familiarly among the hens parakeets and red-headed tanagers lit in the trees over our heads a kind of primitive houseboat was moored at the bank a woman was cooking breakfast over a little stove at one end the crew were ashore the boat was one of those which are really stores and which travel up and down these rivers laden with what the natives most need and stopping wherever there is a ranch they are the only stores which many of the country dwellers see from year's end to year's end. They float downstream and upstream, are pulled by their crew, or now and then get a tow from a steamer. This one had a house with a tin roof. Others bear houses with thatched roofs, or with roofs 
made of hides. The river wound through vast marshes, broken by belts of woodland. Always the two naturalists had something of interest to tell of their past experience, suggested by some bird or beast we came across. Black and golden orioles, slightly crested, of two different species, were found along the river. They nest in colonies, and often we passed such colonies, the long pendulous nests hanging from the boughs of trees directly over the water. Sherry told us of finding such a colony built round a big wasp nest, several feet in diameter. These wasps are venomous and irritable, and few foes would dare venture near birds' nests that were under such formidable shelter. But the birds themselves were entirely unafraid and obviously were not in any danger of disagreement with their dangerous protectors. We saw a dark ibis flying across the bow of the boat, uttering its deep two-syllabled note. Miller told how on the Orinoco these ibises plunder the nests of the big river turtles. They are very skillful in finding where the female turtle has laid her eggs, scratch them out of the sand, break the shells, and suck the contents. It was astonishing to find so few mosquitoes on these marshes. They did not in any way compare as pests with the mosquitoes on the lower Mississippi, the New Jersey coast, the Red River of the North, or the Kootenay. Back in the forest near Corumba, the naturalists had found them very bad indeed. Sherry had spent two or three days on a mountain top which was bare of forest. He had thought there would be few mosquitoes, but the long grass harbored them. They often swarm in long grass and bush even where there is no water, and at night they were such a torment that as soon as the sun set he had to go to bed under his mosquito netting. Yet on the vast marshes they were not seriously troublesome in most places. I was informed that they were not in any way a bother on the grassy uplands, the high country north of Cuyaba, which from thence stretches eastward to the coastal region. It is at any rate certain that this inland region of Brazil, including the state of Mato Grosso, which we were traversing, is a healthy region, excellently adapted to settlement. Railroads will speedily penetrate it, and then it will witness an astonishing development. On the morning of the 28th we reached the home buildings of the great São Jao Fazenda, the ranch of Senor Jao de Costa Marquez, our host himself, and his son Dom Jao the Younger, who was State Secretary of Agriculture, and the latter's charming wife, and the president of Mato Grosso, and several other ladies and gentlemen, had come down the river to greet us, from the city of Cayaba, several hundred miles farther upstream. As usual, we were treated with wholehearted and generous hospitality. Some miles below the ranch house, the party met us, on a stern-wheel steamboat and a launch, both decked with many flags. The handsome white ranch house stood only a few rods back from the river's brink, in a grassy opening, dotted with those noble trees, the royal palms. Other trees, buildings of all kinds, flower gardens, vegetable gardens, fields, corrals, and enclosures with high white walls, stood near the house. A detachment of soldiers, or state police, with a band, were in front of the house, and two flagpoles, one with the Brazilian flag already hoisted. The American flag was run up on the other as I stepped ashore, while the band played the national anthems of the two countries. The house held much comfort, and the comfort was all the more appreciated, because even indoors the thermometer stood at 97 degrees Fahrenheit. In the late afternoon heavy rain fell and cooled the air. We were riding at the time. Around the house the birds were tame. 
the parrots and parakeets crowded and chattered in the tree-tops chicanas played in the wet ground just back of the garden ibises and screamers called loudly in the swamps a little distance off until we came actually in sight of this great ranch house we had been passing through a hot fertile pleasant wilderness where the few small palm-roofed houses each in its little patch of sugar-cane corn and manioc stood very many miles apart one of these little houses stood on an old indian mound exactly like the mounds which form the only hillocks along the lower mississippi and which are also of indian origin these occasional indian mounds made ages ago are the highest bits of ground in the immense swamps of the upper paraguay region there are still indian tribes in this neighborhood we passed an indian fishing village on the edge of the river with huts scaffoldings for drying the fish hammocks and rude tables they cultivated patches of bananas and sugar-cane out in a shallow place in the river was a scaffolding on which the indians stood to spear fish the indians were friendly peaceable souls for the most part dressed like the poorer classes among the brazilians next morning there was to have been a great rodeo or round-up and we determined to have a hunt first as there were still several kinds of beasts of the chase notably tapirs and peccaries of which the naturalists desired specimens dom howe our host and his son accompanied us theirs is a noteworthy family born in matto grosso in the tropics our host had the look of a northerner and although a grandfather he possessed an abounding vigor and energy such as very few men of any climate or surroundings do possess all of his sons are doing well the son who was with us was a stalwart powerful man a pleasant companion an able public servant a finished horseman and a skilled hunter he carried a sharp spear not a rifle for in matto grosso it is the custom in hunting the jaguar for riflemen and spearmen to go in at him together when he turns at bay the spearman holding him off if the first shot fails to stop him so that another shot can be put in altogether our host and his son reminded one of the best type of american ranchmen and planters of those planters and ranchmen who are adepts in bold and manly field sports who are capital men of business and who also often supply to the state skilled and faithful public servants the hospitality the father and son extended to us was patriarchal neither for instance would sit at table with their guests at the beginning of the formal meals instead they exercised a close personal supervision over the feast our charming hostess however sat at the head of the table at six in the morning we started all of us on fine horses the day was lowering and overcast a dozen dogs were with us but only one or two were worth anything three or four ordinary countrymen the ranch hands or vaqueros accompanied us they were mainly of indian blood and would have been called peons or caboclos in other parts of brazil but here were always spoken to and of as camaradas they were of course chosen from among the men who were hunters and each carried his long rather heavy and clumsy jaguar spear in front rode our vigorous host and his strapping son the latter also carrying a jaguar spear the bridles and saddles of the big ranchmen and of the gentlefolk generally were handsome and were elaborately ornamented with silver the stirrups for instance were not only of silver but contained so much extra metal in ornamented bars and rings 
that they would have been awkward for less practiced riders. Indeed, as it was, they were adapted only for the tips of boots with long pointed toes, and were impossible for our feet. Our host's stirrups were long, narrow silver slippers. The camaradas, on the other hand, had Jim Crow saddles and bridles, and rusty little iron stirrups into which they thrust their naked toes. But all, gentry and commonality alike, rode equally well and with the same skill and fearlessness. To see our hosts gallop at headlong speed over any kind of country toward the sound of the dogs with their quarry at bay, or to see them handle their horses in a morass, was a pleasure. It was equally a pleasure to see a camarada carrying his heavy spear, leading a hound in a leash, and using his machete to cut his way through the tangled vine ropes of a jungle, all at the same time and all without the slightest reference to the plunges and the odd and exceedingly jerky behavior of his wild half-broken horse, for on such a ranch most of the horses are apt to come in the categories of half-broken or else of broken down. One dusky, tattered demalion wore a pair of boots from which he had removed the soles, his bare spur-clad feet projecting from beneath the uppers. He was on a little devil of a stallion which he rode blindfold for a couple of miles, and there was a regular circus when he removed the bandage, but evidently it never occurred to him that the animal was hardly a comfortable riding horse for a man going out hunting and encumbered with a spear, a machete, and other belongings. The eight hours that we were out we spent chiefly in splashing across the marshes, with excursions now and then into vine-tangled belts and clumps of timber. Some of the bayous we had to cross were uncomfortably boggy. We had to lead the horses through one, wading ahead of them, and even so two of them were mired down and their saddles had to be taken off before they could be gotten out. Among the marsh plants were fields and strips of the great Kayeti rush. These Kayeti flags towered above the other and lesser marsh plants. They were higher than the heads of the horsemen. Their two or three huge banana-like leaves stood straight up on end. The large brilliant flowers, orange, red, and yellow, were joined into a singularly shaped and solid string or cluster. Hummingbirds buzzed round these flowers. One species, the sickle-billed hummer, has its bill especially adapted for use in these queerly shaped blossoms, and gets its food only from them, never appearing around any other plant. The birds were tame even those striking and beautiful birds which under man's persecution are so apt to become scarce and shy. The huge jabiru storks, stalking through the water with stately dignity, sometimes refused to fly until we were only a hundred yards off. One of them flew over our heads at a distance of thirty or forty yards. The screamers, crying, Kuru, Kuru, and the ibises, wailing dolefully, came even closer. The wonderful hyacinth macaws, in twos and threes, accompanied us at times for several hundred yards, hovering over our heads and uttering their rasping screams. In one wood we came on the black howler monkey. The place smelt almost like a menagerie. Not watching with sufficient care, I brushed against a sapling on which the venomous fire ants swarmed. They burnt the skin like red-hot cinders and left little sores. More than once in the drier parts of the marsh we met small caimans making their way from one pool to another. My horse stepped over one before I saw it. The dead carcasses of others showed that on their wanderings they had encountered jaguars or human foes. 
We had been out about three hours when one of the dogs gave tongue in a large belt of woodland and jungle to the left of our line of march through the marsh. The other dogs ran to the sound, and after a while the long barking told that the thing, whatever it was, was at bay or else in some refuge. We made our way toward the place on foot. The dogs were baying excitedly at the mouth of a huge hollow log, and very short examination showed us that there were two peccaries within, doubtless a boar and sow. However, just at this moment the peccaries bolted from an unexpected opening at the other end of the log, dove into the tangle, and instantly disappeared with the hounds in full cry after them. It was twenty minutes later before we again heard the pack baying. With much difficulty and by the incessant swinging of the machetes, we opened a trail through the network of vines and branches. This time there was only one peccary, the boar. He was at bay in a half-hollow stump. The dogs were about his head, raving with excitement, and it was not possible to use the rifle, so I borrowed the spear of Dom Howe the younger, and killed the fierce little boar therewith. This was an animal akin to our collared peccary, smaller and less fierce than its white-jawed kinsfolk. It is a valiant and truculent little beast nevertheless, and if given the chance will bite a piece the size of a teacup out of either man or dog. It is found singly or in small parties, feeds on roots, fruits, grass, and delights to make its home in hollow logs. If taken young, it makes an affectionate and entertaining pet. When the two were in the hollow log, we heard them utter a kind of moaning or menacing grunt long drawn. End of Chapter 4, Part 1 of Through the Brazilian Wilderness by Theodore Roosevelt Recording by Joelle Peebles